Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. We've all left meetings or interviews or presentations wishing we'd done a better job, created a better impression, maybe changed our tone or changed the way they viewed us. In this wonderful book, Presence, by Amy Cuddy, we find out how to achieve the status of presence by tweaking our body language, our behavior, and our mindset. Amy Cuddy is a professor and researcher at Harvard Business School who studies how nonverbal behavior and snap judgments affect people. Her research has been covered by NPR, New York Times, Wired, and Time named her one of the 50 women changing the world also. And I assume everybody's seen the TED Talk. It is one of the most viewed TED Talks in the history of TED. And tonight we have a special guest, June Gruber, And she is assistant professor at the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at CU Boulder. And she's also the director of the Positive Emotion and Psychopathology Laboratory there. And also a friend of Amy's. After Amy talks a little bit, they're going to do a little interview session and then take questions. So please welcome Amy Cuddy. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, so I, I, I want to make a couple of have a couple of things to tell you before I get started in the the, the real content. Um, first, I lived in Boulder for eight years, so I went to see you, and I am very proud of that. Uh, and um, my husband, where's where are you? He's back there. Uh, who is Australian? Uh, he he and I both would love to move back out here. So we're slowly trying to do that. Um, and uh, and I'd also like to say, so I, I to me the tattered cover is this. I was saying this morning, it's it's this iconic logo that's burned into my heart and brain. And I can't believe I'm speaking here. To me, this is like, you know, one of the the. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I already got choked up once this morning I, I, when I spoke at the ABA this morning. Uh, also, so there are many special guests here today, uh, including my friend June, who I'll, I will say a little bit more about later. Also, um, one of my very, very, very best childhood friends is here. She's sitting out here. Her name's Jessie. And I haven't seen her in a few years. And I, I, you know, speaking about presence and as I sort of wrote this book, you really re- reflect a lot on, on um, who you are and your values and the things that kind of make you who you are. God, it's like a cry, happy crying day. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, and you, you, you really come to um, appreciate the people who made you who you are, you know? And, uh, and Jesse is really, really one of those people for me. And I, I remember the first night I, uh, I slept at her house. We went out late, and, 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 and she had this kooky little, awesome little casa that she lived in with her mom. And, uh, and we slept in, in her room, and she played Joni Mitchell for me. And it was the first time that I heard Joni Mitchell. And uh, it was Carrie. And I, I'm, you know, no return after that. But I remember that moment. And, you know, so she, she really, 
sorry, I'm going, but I think this is so important. You know, the things that I value and that make me who I am, she's a big part of that, and, and her family as well. And in fact, her father and his identical twin, uh, their firm designed the cover of my book. Uh, so I really wanted to make all of them part of this as well. So here she is tonight. <laughs> And um, I, I, I hope I won't embarrass anyone by making this announcement, but um, this morning when I spoke, the, the governor spoke before me because he wanted to honor the wonderful owner of the tattered cover, Joyce Meskus. And you may know that today has now become Colorado State Joyce Meskus Day. Uh, he named it that. So, uh, and I got to sit at a table with her, and I felt like I was meeting a huge celebrity. So it was a pretty amazing moment for me. So thank you for coming. Uh, I, I'm just going to take you through some of the things that I think are especially interesting about um, the work that I've been doing. And, I, I will, um, and then we'll spend the second half chatting. Um, so first, I want you to think about you know, biggest challenges in the title of the book and what is your biggest challenge? So what's the thing that you approach with a sense of fear, you execute with anxiety, you leave with regret, this moment when you want a do-over, you think, oh, if only I'd said this or that. This is the thing that people care about. After the TED Talk, I realized that all these people who were writing to me about challenging moments weren't writing about the outcome. They weren't writing about whether they got the job or not. They were writing to tell me how they felt when they left, right? And they either felt that they had really represented themselves and they could, they could accept the outcome, or that they, they hadn't and they wanted this do-over. And I realized that that's what matters. I don't really care about the outcome that much, as long as people are doing okay. I want them to be able to go through life and feel that they have been authentic and that they've honored themselves and the people that they're interacting with and that they did the best they could because that's when they can accept the outcome. And that's really what presence is about. Um, I, it's, let me just tell you a short story that I tell in, in the, the last chapter of the book. Uh, a young man wrote to me. His name is Will Cuddy. Turns out he's not related to me. Uh, he was a student at the University of Oregon. And he is, was an amateur actor. And his agent called and said, there's a role that you have got to audition for. And it's in a major motion picture, and it's going to be set in Oregon, or part of it is. And you're perfect for it because they want, like, a young, rugged, outdoorsy guy. And, uh, and so he said he went to the audition. He was terrified. He felt like th- he looked around and thought, I'm a total imposter. I do not belong here. And he got very nervous. And he said he, his best friend had told him, if you ever feel like that, go into the bathroom and stand like Wonder Woman for two minutes. <laughs> and he said, I had no idea why. But my best friend usually gives me good advice. So I went into the bathroom and I stood like Wonder Woman for two minutes. And he said, and I came out and I just felt so much better. And I went in and I had the time of my life. And it was the best audition I'd ever had. I wasn't at all intimidated. I I was excited to be there. I was excited to show them what I could do. And I left and he said, my dad was there, which I think is incredibly sweet too. And his dad said, how'd you do? And he said, I nailed it. And his dad said, you got the role? And he said, 
I don't know, but I, I totally nailed it. Like, it doesn't matter. And that, to me, is exactly where I want people to be. And he did get the role. And the movie is called Wild, which you might have seen last year. And if you watched it all the way through, she meets three young guys at the end of the trail, and he's the blonde. So you can see Will Cuddy on the big screen. He and his dad actually flew to Boston to go to the premiere with us. Uh, so we're now sort of related. Um, so, But that, to me, is, is that's perfect, because he left feeling like whatever happens, I did the best I could do, and he, turned, he performed better, right? Because he wasn't focusing on the performance. He ended up performing better. So what if we could, uh, I'm, I'm going to skip this one. What if we could ex- instead approach these situations with composure, ex- execute with them with sort of calm confidence, and leave them with a sense of satisfaction? So then you're present in every stage. You're not borrowing trouble from a future that hasn't yet unfolded. You're not backwards projecting yourself into a situation that you can't change anyway. How do you do that? Well, first, understand that what happens when we're present, the reason it's convincing to other people, the reason that we're more compelling, the reason that we perform better, is that we believe our story, and that's evident to people who are listening to us. If you ask people like venture capitalists, what, what are you looking for? Say you have five equally good ideas and you're, you, it comes down to the pitch. What's going to matter? So I'm going to move so Jesse can see me. Uh, what, what, what's going to matter? They say, I, I want to believe, like I want to know that they, buy, they would buy what they're selling to me. If they wouldn't buy what they're selling to me, there's no way that I'm going to buy it. That's believing your story. They want conviction. But that doesn't mean they want all the answers. They want to see confidence without arrogance. Right? They want you to be so comfortable that you don't need the smokescreen of arrogance to protect yourself. Because arrogance is not confidence. You know, it's really just a defense mechanism that you put up to make sure nobody challenges you. So when people are present, they are able to be confident without being arrogant. And the last thing, and this is a little more sciencey, but kind of cool, is that when we're being authentic and present, our communication across verbal and nonverbal channels is synchronized. That, and then what I mean by that is that what our words are, are, are communicating is consistent with our body language. So if we're telling a happy story, our bodies look happy. If we're telling a sad story, our bodies look sad. When we're lying, that's what you, that's what you look for to know if somebody's lying. You don't look for something like eye contact, which is actually a terrible predictor, but everyone thinks it's a great one. You're looking to see if there are asynchronies. So are they telling one story, but their body's telling another story? When you're being authentic and present, you're not choreographing all these separate pieces. You're just being in the moment, and it's flowing. So you're kind of getting out of the way of yourself so that you can be yourself. So those are the th- things that happen when we're present. Um, how we become present is a little interesting and maybe surprising. So presence is this word that I think repels people because they think it's too soft and too abstract. Or it's, I, I get there's two, there are two populations of people who hate this word. <laughs> the one are, this, are scientists who think it's not sciencey enough, and the others are sort of the average American who feel like it's, it's not accessible to them, that it's for people who can afford to go on a month-long yoga retreat or take a pilgrimage around the world. And not that those are bad things, but most of us can't do that. So some people think, oh, it's this thing that you work toward your whole life and you have to constantly be investing in and maybe eventually you'll get there you know, the day before you die. And that's not what it is either because no one is present all the time. There's no monk in the world who's present all the time. We're human. And of course, you know, 
30% of you are probably distracted right now. That's okay. I, I can live with that. But, but no one should want to or expect to achieve permanent presence. It's about moments. That's the first thing. The second is that it's about feeling personally powerful. Power is another word that repels people, but in a totally different way. And if you ask people what word do they associate with power, what do you think they come up with? Greed. Corruption. Corruption is the one that I hear the most often. And I think that's because people are thinking of a very certain kind of social power that's power over other people and over their access to the resources they need, and it's people who are really abusing that. So most power is not like that. Most power is, 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 you know, happens at the, inter, at, at, the, at the personal level. So let me get to this Julianne Moore quote, which might seem a little strange. Uh, but so you've got power, this prickly word, and presence, this really soft word, and somehow they go together. So Julianne Moore was one of the people I interviewed for the book because I wanted to talk to people who really were great practitioners of presence. And if you talk to any director who's worked with her, they'll tell you that she's a master at this. Now, what's interesting is that most people who are masterful at something have no idea why they are. Right? They can't explain it. They just are. But she can explain it because she worked to get there, and she's very smart. And we started chatting one day. I happened to, like, I just, oh, hey, Julianne Moore in the coffee shop. We were invited to an event, and I happened to be sitting next to her. Uh, and, um, and so we started talking about presence, and she just, her eyes lit up. She just loves thinking about this and talking about it. And I, by the end, I thought, you should write the book instead of me. She actually has written some wonderful children's books. Um, her brother is also an author, so she comes from a writing family. But, but she, she said, one of the things, I, I ended up then sitting down for several hours interviewing her about this, and I said, what is presence about? And she said, it's really about power. It's about feeling powerful. And by that, I mean feeling seen and understood, feeling validated. And, and you know, you can get that through formal power. She said, honestly, I get, I get it for free and I don't even really deserve it. But she said, because of my status, people are constantly validating me. You know, they're constantly looking back and reflecting me to myself. And she said, and that makes you feel kind of powerful and it makes it easier for you to not feel threatened. But she said, most people don't have that. And so, for example, if I'm acting with a young actor and she, you know, she does, I I don't know how she makes as many wonderful movies as she does, but she often works with young people. And she said they're, they're intimidated. She gets there, and they're really talented, but they're in a scene with Julianne Moore, and they kind of shut down. And I said, what do you do? She said, I make them feel powerful. Well, how do you do that? I listen to them. I ask them about themselves. I let them talk as long as they need to talk until I know that they feel seen. And she said, and I love people. It's not, e- it's not hard for me to do. It's easy. I want to know about them. But that's when I see them gaining their personal power back, their sense that they can bring forth the skills that they need to do well. So this is, I think, a really interesting idea. And uh, um, I, I want to say again, it's not about power over other people. Personal power, If think of it like this. So I was recently in Cambodia, and I was trying to get money from a cash machine, and I couldn't. And I felt really frustrated because I knew there was money in the account, but it wasn't where I couldn't access it. Personal power is like when you have great skills and knowledge and you need to get them at this moment, in these challenging moments, and you can't access them. So say you're taking a test and you've studied like crazy, but somehow you draw a blank. Or you're speaking and you go blank. I mean, this is lacking personal power. When we feel personally powerful, we don't feel threatened. We're not in fight or flight mode. 
and we can access those things about ourselves that we need to bring forth in these challenging situations. So that's, that's the difference. So power, what we find in psychology in many, many, many studies where uh, people are made to feel powerful or powerless, is that when people feel powerful... They are more approach-oriented. They see challenges not as threats but as opportunities. So their, their minds don't go into scared animal, I better hide or run or fight mode. They, they are confident and calm and relaxed. They also tend to be more optimistic and more confident. Generally, power makes people act and it makes people do so with a positive attitude and a sense of optimism and confidence. Powerlessness does exactly the opposite. It activates what we call, and June's advisor, who did a lot of this work, uh, the behavioral inhibition system, where people see these challenges as threats instead of as opportunities, and they, they avoid instead of approach, and they feel cynical and pessimistic and not confident, and they shut down. So... If you're feeling powerless when you walk into this challenge, and that's how we often feel, of course you can't be present. So I think that Julianne Moore was right, that power does allow you to be present. But how do you get there? Uh, so without adjusting, check your posture, because I want you to pay attention to sort of how you normally sit. And uh, you all look pretty okay, but, but <laughs> there are still little tweaks that people can make. I, I want you to pay attention especially to how much you're pulling your shoulders forward, sinking your chest in. You know, sometimes women will um, uh, cross their, their legs and then wrap their ankles. The crossed legs, fine, but the crossed legs and wrapped ankles, I call it twisty legs, um, not so good. So, you know, how much are you sort of closing up and making yourself small versus allowing yourself to have the space that you should be able to have and, and feeling relaxed. That's what matters. That's, that's the dimension that I care about, this expansiveness versus contractiveness. And it comes from, really, the animal world. Uh, so the nice thing about primates that are not human, as Franz de Waal, who's a famous primatologist, also a great author, uh, not, not also as in I'm a great author, but I referred to some other great authors earlier. Um, so... He, he said once that the great thing about studying non-human primates was that they weren't constrained by social norms, and so you could kind of see exactly what people would do if they weren't constrained by social norms. So it's a nice place to start when you're looking at body language. So when primates have power, when they're dominant in their hierarchy, they expand, they make themselves big, they pound their chest, they, chimps will even pick up sticks and hold them like this to make themselves look bigger. But it turns out other animals do the same thing. So when they're trying to show that they're dominant, they make themselves bigger. They expand in lots of different ways. And I'm just giving you a small snapshot and humans are the same. Now, I want to just for a second focus on this pose. So this is from gymnastics, of course. This is what gymnasts do before and after a routine. They go out, they stand like this in front of the judges. But why is it this pose? Of all the expansive, crazy poses that you could choose, like you could make up your own, yeah, you know, you could, <laughs> but why this, why this one? Because it signals victory and pride and power. And in fact, Jessica Tracy, a researcher at University of British Columbia, has studied this pose in about three or four dozen cultures now, and she's found that everywhere she's gone, including places that she's hiked into where no one has interacted with an outsider, she finds that people, when they win, throw their arms up in the air in a V, lift their chins, and open their mouths. And when she shows them pictures of people from other places doing that and says, what emotion do they feel? They say, pride 
power, confidence, right? So this is a universal human emotion. Just like happiness is, so is power and pride. It just involves more of the body than, than happiness. Um, this is what happens when you lose and start to feel powerless. You start to shrink and cover yourself up, wrap yourself up. You become a scared animal, right? You, you, um, you do exactly what an animal would do when it's feeling threatened and wants to be invisible and not offend anyone at the top of the hierarchy. This is what we do when our teams are not doing well. Uh, this is what we do when we win the silver medal. Uh, strangely, great social psychology study uh, that, that looked at who's the happiest of the medalists, and it turns out the silver medalists are the least happy because uh, they're comparing upward, as you can see here, where everybody else is comparing downward. So the bronze medalists are just really happy to be there. Animals do the same thing as humans. They, they wrap themselves up. The tail between the legs and dogs is actually correlated with cortisol spikes. So when they're doing that, uh, they're stress hormones are, are, are increasing. And in fact, there's, there's some evidence that, um, that, that by splinting the tail out, you can um, calm a, a neurotic dog because then, their body is signaling to them that they're not in a threatening situation. So it's the sort of body-mind feedback. Now, this is, we'll see, right? But, but pretty, pretty intriguing. Uh, and of course, this is what dogs do when they're showing that they're submissive and the other animals do the same thing. Right? So you make yourself big when you're powerful and small when you're submissive. So when we feel powerful, we expand in lots of ways. We feel deserving in an appropriate way, usually. <laughs> and we take up more space physically. We even speak more slowly and we take more pauses because pauses are not scary, vulnerable openings. You know, they're, they're, we feel okay pausing. And the thing is, pauses are really powerful, but people forget to use them because they're scared of that silent moment. So when we feel powerless, we do the opposite. That was one of the things that we wanted to understand when we started this research. And I, I, I know that some of you have seen my TED Talk, so I'm not going to spend much time on, on those findings. I'll just sort of update you. So we did a bunch of studies, and other labs have done a bunch of studies, and they've been looking at what happens when you adopt very expansive postures. And these are some of the postures that, that we've used in our studies. Uh, they're not the only ones. We tried to choose mostly postures that people would actually use in every, everyday life occasionally. And these are the powerless postures. People are randomly assigned to one or the other condition, and they hold those poses for between a minute and two minutes usually. And we're actually finding that shorter seems to be better. Longer is, just becomes really awkward. <laughs> so so I would, you know, two minutes somehow took on this magical meaning after the TED Talk, but it's not magical uh, at all. So I think that if you have even 30 seconds in a, you know, an elevator or, yeah, the stairwell or a, ba a bathroom stall, uh, try one of those powerful postures. What we find is, in our first study, we found an increase in testosterone and a decrease in cortisol, which is consistent with the profile of powerful uh, individuals in human and non-human hierarchies, and also consistent with the pro hormone profile of good leaders. And by good leaders, I mean people who have power and who are rated by the people they are leading as good leaders, as people who really care about the people they are leading. So it's actually sort of the ideal hormone profile in a way to deal with challenge because you're feeling strong and confident, but you're not feeling stress reactive. You're able to weather a crisis, deal with negative feedback, and so on. Uh, so this is what we found. We found in, in the first study an increase in testosterone of 20% and a decrease of testosterone in the low power posers of 10%. 
and similar effects on cortisol. Other studies have shown similar things. This is a study, a medical study that looked at yoga poses. This one looked at the cobra pose, which I think is an interesting study because it's not very comfortable. Um, I'm going to try holding this again. But it's still very expansive. In this study, they, they took blood serum levels, which is uh, more conservative than what we did. And what they found was a 16% increase in testosterone, 11% decrease in cortisol. And this is a small, very small sample. It's a medical study, but... but w- one of the, the, the notable things about it was that unlike any study I've ever done, they found the effect in every single participant. So every single person in the study had an increase in testosterone and a decrease in cortisol after holding the cobra pose for just two to three minutes. So something's going on there. Uh, it also improves your ability to think abstractly. Uh, it improves kids' ability to be productive in school, and especially on uh, creative writing tasks, which I think is pretty neat, because that's really about expressing yourself and feeling pretty fearless. Uh, it, imp- it improves people's pain threshold so they can tolerate higher amounts of pain. I didn't do the study, but, uh, but someone did. And it improves people's performance and outcomes in job interviews. So they, they, when, you, when you have people do these poses before a stressful mock job interview, the judges who are judging the videos of their job interviews want to hire those people. They don't know that there was any manipulation. They don't know what condition these people were in, but they want that there's something about these people that they say makes them a better candidate. What, what is different about them? What's different is that they are more present. So the qualities that I talked about in the beginning, that's what these people are showing when you look at these videos. They believe their story, they're, con- they're communicating confidence without arrogance, and they're communicating fluidly and harmoniously. So they are being present. It, interestingly, the content of their speeches, so the structure, the things they're saying, that doesn't vary uh, whether they're in the high or low power pose before they walk in. They're saying the same things, but they're saying them in a different way, with more presence and conviction, with more sense of personal power. So expansive posture, just like power does the same kind of thing to your brain, it seems. It makes you feel more positive, more confident. It makes you act and perform well. But it's not just about power poses. And this is, I think, really important because I do get, as much as I love how sticky that idea was, I get a little frustrated that people are stuck on two minutes as Wonder Woman because I think the bigger picture is that your body is constantly in conversation with your mind. Constantly, even while you're sleeping, your body is sending signals to your mind about what's going on. Are you safe? Are you not safe? Are you happy? Are you not happy? When you look at uh, clinically depressed people, you find that they often are in these slumped postures. So that's something that a clinician would look for when they're they're evaluating someone. June is a a clinical and social psychologist, superstar, so we can talk more about that. Uh, But but the slumped posture is associated with depression, and there are some studies now showing that if you have depressed people sit upright, force them to sit upright, which isn't their favorite thing to do, but it does alleviate some signs of depression, and they show a positive uh, self-memory bias, meaning they remember more positive memories from their history and more positive things about themselves. So just simply sitting upright versus slouching makes people more happy. Now, this is a little bit of a problem when you think about how much time we spend on these things, uh, because we end up adopting that slouch posture. And I, I won't spend time on this, but we have done a study showing that working on an iPhone versus a bigger device like this 
leads to a difference in assertiveness. So five minutes on one of these devices where you're more contractive or expansive, the black bar represents how assertively people behaved after that. So the smaller the device, the less assertive people were. So it does seem to be having some effect. Uh, The other one is, how do you sleep? Do you sleep like this? Or do you sleep like this? Now, I think it's fine for babies. Uh, And this is sort of the general breakdown of how people sleep. So about 40% of people are in the fetal position while they're sleeping. So we did a study, we don't have a sleep lab, but where we asked people just every morning, they would, we would send them a, a, a we would push them a, a quick questionnaire where they would tell us how they slept. We had a bunch of drawings, they'd circle the one that looked like how they slept. And it turned out the people who were bunched in the fetal position in their upper body, lower body didn't seem to be as predictive, they woke up, they, they, they had higher what we call state anxiety scores, so meaning they're... They're not, they weren't generally more anxious, but at that moment they felt more anxious. Obviously that's correlational. It's working in both directions. But uh, these people seem to definitely be the clear winners. Now, and the thing is you can't, you can't easily change the way you sleep, but you can change what you do before you put your feet on the ground. You know, So in the morning, if you wake up all clenched up, I sometimes have like my nail prints in my, the palms of my hands, Stretch out, in, and you're all now feeling sorry for me, and second-guessing whether I know what I'm talking about. But So uh, stretch out. You know, make yourself bigger before you get out of bed. You know, don't go from that stressed-out position to run and check your email, because it's not going to really start, you, uh, uh, start the day off well for you. So I'm going to end with, uh, well, pre- prepare with big poses, but, but in private, because this doesn't go over well. Uh, <laughs> Present with good open posture, but not dominant posture, and mind your posture throughout the day. Right? So if you're, phone, if you're on your phone all the time, set a reminder every hour to check your posture. Right? Do things like that. One of my RAs, she says she brushes her teeth like this with one hand on her hip. So she builds it into her routine. Do, do things that force you to open up. Get up and walk around. Have walking meetings. Set up your desk space so that you're forced to reach for things. Put pictures of people you love high on the wall so that you're forced to look up. So do things throughout the day, even when you're not approaching a challenge. Uh, And keep in mind that this is a tiny little nudge that can lead to, incrementally, a big change. Right? So it's something that's free to everyone. You don't have to have resources that are concrete. You don't have to have formal power. You really just have to have yourself. Uh, And you slowly, incrementally nudge yourself forward. So let me leave you with this thought uh, from Maya Angelou, who had uh, just about everything right. Stand up straight and realize who you are, that you tower over your circumstances. So I think now we will have, we'll do, we'll do a little conversation and then open it up to some questions. Thank you. Getting a range here. I just wanted to say a, a couple more words about about June. Um, so June uh, is also in my field, but also a clinical psychologist. She's sort of a superhuman who produces more than anyone I know. Uh, she June studies. Uh, yeah, this is a little. June studies positive emotions, but she studies sort of the upsides and the downsides of positive emotions, among other things. One of the things that June did that you should all look up online is to produce a short video series uh, where she interviewed pretty much all of the people in our field who study emotions, 
how many, 60 of them or something? It and they're free few. online. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can watch these videos and ha mm -hmm. hear these people talking about all of these different emotions and the science of them. So what is it? What is the series called? It's called the Experts in Emotion interview series. And if you just put it into YouTube, you'll find all a host of all the different interviews that range on topics, you know, looking at relationships to mental health, to jealousy, to even just animal emotions relating to what you saw just there. And so it's pretty amazing, and and uh, we just really connect. Yeah. So uh, and June is sort of a bit of a hero to me because if I hope she doesn't mind my revealing this, but June uh, left a very stressful ivory tower place, which she she can maybe talk about later, mm -hmm. uh, to come to the University of Colorado because she wanted to be at a place like this. She wanted to teach at a state school. She wanted to be mm -hmm. in a place where people were happy and focused on the quality of their lives. So I, I think CU is very, very lucky to have her. And I, I think it's a great example for, for other people as well. So now I'll hand it over to June. Thank you. And I think you're right. When you leave a place, for me it was Yale, and you're sort of following your true self and being as present as you can, you never look back. Yeah. You know, I was thinking when you were talking about presence, um, going back to the moment that we first met, and the way I look at it now is it was a moment where presence really showed like how it can socially connect and bind people. And funny enough, uh, I was thinking about the moment when we met, and little did we know it, we were dancing to Living on a Prayer at a friend's wedding. Oh, that's right. Very, very powerful pose. Oh, there's pictures. <laughs> there's pictures. I've got photos, so. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. That's right. That there are photos. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. It was good. Yeah, so, you know, I was really loving your talk, as I'm sure everyone else here did, and thinking of a quote from your book that you alluded to, and I just want to read it now, because I think it's a really elegant quote. You say, presence is not permanent. It exists in moments, and we can all find those moments. And I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, what was the moment where you first knew you had this story to tell. Ooh, wow. Um, by the way, I asked June to surprise me with questions because I wanted each of my experiences on this book tour to be unique, and I wanted her to ask me difficult questions. <laughs> um, so it, it was, I think, let's see if I can find the moment, but hearing from all of these people, and you know, the first person who talked to me after the TED Talk was literally a Swiss banker. Hmm. He was dressed perfectly. He came up to me after the TED Talk and said, you know what? I feel like an imposter. And I thought, wow, you know, wow, he feels like an imposter. He said, I go in every day and I do my job and I don't think anyone knows it, but I feel like an imposter. And I started to realize slowly that almost everyone feels like an imposter at some time in their lives. And, and indeed, the research backs that up. Um, but... Those, you know, so it starts with a Swiss banker, and then it was, you know, a 13-year-old girl in mainland China who wants to learn English, and she's talking about power posing so that she can raise her hand in class. So the, the range of people that I was hearing from was enormous, but they were all talking about their own unique idiosyncratic moment. They weren't saying, I just generally want to feel better. They were saying, I wish I could feel better in this situation. And so... That was sort of what got me thinking about it in terms of moments and thinking that those are the moments when we most need to be present, but they're the moments when we are least likely to be present, right? We really need to show up for those moments uh, 
but we feel so pow- powerless that we can't. So yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's how I started to think about the, mom- the, the, the moments. That's a great way. And, you know, when you're talking about moments, it makes me think about some of the moments where we all feel, as you're saying, the most powerless. And in particular, um, coming from a background as a clinical psychologist, when I, you know, will meet with different clients, they'll talk about some of these moments. And some of the ones that often stand out are moments where people felt extreme fear. So instances, as you've talked about in your book, of trauma, um, and sometimes for some people, you know, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, they talk about this moment and a very, very salient moment of feeling extremely powerless. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, so I, I, I do talk a bit about post-traumatic stress in the book, which is not something that I expected to get to. But as I was studying, you know, looking in other areas of research about the body-mind connection, that's what I kept finding. And in particular, this really outstanding work by another colleague of ours, Emma Sapala, who has a book coming out next month. Yeah. Uh, was it the Happiness Track? The Happiness Track. Uh, and she, had, she started looking at how to, how to intervene and reduce post-traumatic stress in combat veterans with PTS. And so she used a very, very simple yoga-based approach. It was a really short program, and the, the, these, they, they were all men. The guys in this program showed a comp- basically all of the post-traumatic stress symptoms that had been measured before they went in, they showed no signs of post-traumatic stress on after the program. A year later, they showed dramatically still diminished post-traumatic stress. They had moved out of their parents' homes. They had gotten jobs. One of them you know, said to her, you changed my life. Another father called her and said, thank you for giving me my son back. It was the simplest intervention. And one of them is even teaching, training others now how to do this. But they say that, you know, and she felt that trauma is the ultimate powerlessness, post-traumatic stress in particular, because you feel that in many cases, your body has betrayed you. You've lost your sense of identity. These guys lost their sense of pride, certainly their sense of power. And talking yourself out of it is nearly impossible. So it's one of these it's one of these situations where I think talk therapy is a little bit tough and it may not be enough, but the body can start telling the mind you're not in a fight or flight situation anymore. You know, you're, you're, you're okay. You, you can feel proud, you can feel powerful and you, you don't need to talk about it a lot to get back there. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that it has, I, I think that the applications to trauma are, are, I think we're just beginning to to get into that. And for me, it's certainly, you know, hearing these stories um, reminded me of how I felt after I I was in this car accident, actually leaving Jesse's place. She lived in Missoula. We were driving from Missoula to Boulder in the middle of the night and rolled the car, uh, fell asleep, and I was thrown out of the car and um, in the hospital for a long time and had a traumatic brain injury. And I wasn't driving, and so... I wasn't driving when we were in the accident, and my two friends, by the way, who were in the accident were fine. They were in their seatbelts, and, and they, were, they were fine. Um, but I felt incredibly scared when I got into a car as a passenger. I didn't want to drive, but I also didn't want to be a passenger because I felt totally powerless. And I felt myself, the first time I got into a car, I remember this so distinctly. It was up at, I was in the Mapleton Hospital. We were driving away. And in the first block, I remember I immediately pulled my knees up to my chest and wrapped my arms around my legs. And it reminded me of when I was a little kid, we lived in Washington State, and there were no, I was in 
Eastern Washington in a park, there were, there was no one, no kids to play with. So I was always looking for like critters outside. And I used to play with these little, I called them pill bugs. They were these little bugs that roll up into a ball. And I always wanted them to not roll up. You know, I was like, I'll be your friend. Somehow I was going to be a pill bug whisperer. So I would pick them up and they would immediately go into that ball. And I was so sad every time. But then I thought, but I'm just this enormous, scary thing to them. So of course they're in this ball. So when I was in the car that day, I was, I immediately thought, wow, this is just like a pill bug. That was about as far as I went. I didn't make the connection until many years later that maybe if I had forced myself to stretch out then to take up more space, I might have found that a little easier because I was just certainly telling my, my mind that I was in a very scary situation. And uh, anyway, interesting personal applications as well. Well, I was wondering as you're telling your story of recovering from trauma, what advice would the present, pres- the present you with presence give to yourself back then? Oh, what present... Of presence, could I give to myself? <laughs> Not <Is> presence. Um, <laughs> what kind of presence would you have liked your past self to have had in that oh. moment? Like, what might you have said? I think that I um, allowed myself to be defined too much by by other people, right? So mm-hmm. the feedback that I got that I, you know, and and it's funny because I didn't even tell, I didn't tell m- most of my friends. I don't think I told really many people at all that I had, I had lost 30 IQ points. Um, and I knew that because I had been in the gifted program as a kid. So I knew my IQ and, and then they gave me a day long battery of neuropsych tests. And in that there was an IQ test. I didn't know it, but when they gave that back to me, I saw that. And they actually told me that I would have trouble finishing college. One of them said, you'll be high functioning, but you know, look for other work sort of, which is just the worst thing to say. And I really let that define me. And I think that that, um, I, I, I gave my power away I, or I allowed people to take it away. And I wish that I had had a little bit more of a connection with who I was and what my sort of core values were and what were the things that made me, me like loving Joni Mitchell, you know, like just little things like no matter what, I'm going to love music and it will make me happy. Little things like that I still had, but I, I felt that this big piece of my identity and losing that took away all of my power. So I guess I wish that I could have known then that although I would be a different person in the future and I'd have to sort of break up with my old self because you don't really get it back after a head injury, I would find another self. I, I sometimes think of it as like when you're in a not great relationship, but not terrible and it's not really working, but you're afraid to end it because what if there's not somebody else out there, but it's better to end it. That's sort of what I had to do with my old self to say, I'm not going to get that person back. I'm, I'm going to have to let go of that and know that there will be another self that I can inhabit, uh, later. I mean, it's just the most amazing story of courage that I think many of us have heard and a lot, a lot better, a lot better stories. And the emails that I get, well, but thank you. I mean, you've overcome so much and so many challenges that I think a lot of people and myself, we look at you and see you as the ultimate powerful woman and think, you know, wow, what challenges could Amy possibly have? She's, she's Oof. overcome everything. No. 
Yeah. That's my perception as a friend who admires you very much. So um, thank you. I'm watching yeah. my, my husband raise his eyebrows back there because <laughs> I spent probably a couple hours today in the hotel room being really sad about some trolls who've been giving me a hard time on the internet. And yeah. even though, you know, I know that I'm supposed to ignore this, of course it hurts my feelings. You know, when people say haters going to hate, I'm like, are you human? You know, like, have you had somebody really hate you and say nasty things about you? And so, uh, you know, I know that I should ignore that stuff, but it's kind of hard to actually, if you, if you are on the internet and you sort of have to be, um, when you're, you know, working and doing something like this, you can't completely avoid that stuff. But man, I completely let them take away my sense of power every time. And, And I have to give myself my own advice. Um, I have a little inscription in my book to myself saying, um, start following your own advice, uh, be, be brave. But, but those things, and, and the thing is, the, the kinds of situations that make us so scared and feel powerless all involve this quality of social judgment, right? It's yeah. never, it's always this feeling that someone's going to judge us negatively or kick us out of the tribe. That's the thing that drives it. And so, yeah, even, even these strangers who are actually at home sitting there feeling utterly powerless, which is why they're trolling me, <laughs> I, make me feel powerless. So that is, I mean, it seems so silly and trivial, but, but uh, you know, yeah, I definitely have a lot of stuff to work on. I guess we all do. We're human, right? Yeah. <laughs> June's now going into clinical psychologist <laughs> I can tell <laughs> that's the voice you can't help yourself you know <laughs> I mean you know thinking a lot about this it's I find it really fascinating because this absorption we have as humans with the connection between our minds and our emotions and our body goes way back right um, I'm married to a philosopher, so you know I get a lot of exposure to ancient philosophical traditions talking about the mind-body and you know Buddhism. Yeah. Um, there seems to be this absorption we've had as humans with wanting to understand that relationship. And I, I guess I wonder what you think about how your work and how this wonderful book can add to that you know dialogue oh, as, as a species. That's, well, that's yeah. so. I, it's funny, I, I, I feel like I get too kind of... When pe- people who aren't open to this or react against it, there, there's two groups. There's the ones who say, we've known this forever. You know, there, there's always that group, I think. With anything you say, there are people who are going to say, we've known this forever. What? There's nothing new here. But the other... And, and I think that we have known this forever. And yeah. to me, I'm like, yes, we have. And now there's even more science to support it. Uh, it's a good thing. Right, yeah. yeah. Now yeah. we understand it better. But the other, the other group, I think, are, are people I, I think of as stuck so much in their heads and thinking of, of humans as separate from other animals that, that it's hard for them to accept that it's not just the mind shaping the body but it is the body shaping the mind, that we are primitive. And, um, and I, I think it's, there's an enormous power and wisdom in this and potential to help us, uh, but I do think that people have some resistance to it. And, you know, we're finding that it, it is, it, there's resistance in the field uh, d- with, among some people, yeah. and I, I do think that, that we want to think that we can talk our way out of things and that the idea that the body could make us feel better, well, how crazy is that? So I hope that, that it, it opens people up to the, you know, going, again, beyond Wonder Woman and power posing to just thinking all the time, sort of, what are we telling ourselves in the way that we're carrying ourselves? Because the way we carry our bodies you know, affects how we carry out our lives. And um, I think there's so many different applications of that. 
It reminds me even of some of the work in the field of human emotion where even just changing the muscles in your face, if you're told to contract muscles in your face associated with expansive smiling, even if you have no idea in the moment what you're doing, it already is signaling and changing yes. you know, physiological responses, your emotion experience, and that's just your face. Right. Yeah. So the, the, the early work, yeah. I mean, William James, who was a psychologist and philosopher and actually known as the first American psychologist, taught the first psychology course, and the Harvard Psychology Building is named William James Hall. Uh, he said in, I think, 1883, uh, he was saying, look, it's the body-mind connection. He was saying, I, I, I don't sing because I'm happy. I'm happy because I sing. And so he was saying things like this, uh, and, and people were like, you're crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and he, he wasn't yet able to test them, but by the 70s, people started to test these ideas and started at the face because... Mm-hmm. We know that there are these universal facial expressions of emotion. And so, yeah, the facial feedback, smiling makes you happier, but furrowing the brow makes you feel angry. Um, There's even research now looking at the effects of Botox on how people feel. And it's mixed. So, And and I talk about this a bit in the book. Um, So... It's, it's mixed because for people who ha- have some signs of depression, getting Botox between the eyebrows is actually helpful. Uh, but, but for most people who get it around these, you can try to get rid of their crow's feet, which I think is so sad. I think we should love our crow's feet. Um, because what happens then is because they can't mirror the emotions of others, especially smiling, they can't recognize the emotions of others as well. So they, they, they end up not understanding people as well. And I talk about this study in the book as well. And, and, and other people don't like them as much because they, not because they think they smile less, but because they feel that they don't understand them. So it's really fascinating. Uh, but yeah, the, the face is where we began as experimentalists. Yeah. It's the sort of marker of an authentic smile is those wonderful crow's feet. Yes. You see more and more crow's feet. Yeah. You know, um, as someone who sometimes gets teased for studying the dark side of happiness, um, I can't help but ask a question, um, which is like, you know, are there ever like boundary conditions or a a dark side of presence? Can it ever be misapplied, I guess? Mm -hmm. Certainly, what I, and I feel that you, you heard me say many times in private, but I still, like, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a Business Insider article. And they, by the way, Business Insider has done, really been wonderful at covering my stuff. But sometimes they get it wrong. And it was, like, six poses that you can use to do- be dominant. And it was, like, they named them. And they were encouraging people to do these in meetings to sort of win the negotiation. And I thought, oh, good God, that's not what I meant at all. So that is certainly a misapplication. And, yeah, you can do that. But what's going to happen is that the other person is going to do the opposite, which is what we call it complementarity, where when somebody's acting super dominant, the other person becomes submissive. We don't, personal power is infinite. It's not zero sum. So you don't go, need to go in and act dominant. You, uh, you, you, you can go in and just be comfortable. So I think that that's where I, that's where I worry about it. People taking it in the wrong direction. I'm not sure that you can be too present, but I think that you can certainly act too powerful in social, in, in interactions. Unless you're listening to Living on a Prayer at a wedding. <laughs> yeah. Well, then yeah. you're all doing it together. Yeah. Happily. I think, you know, it's really interesting what you're talking about. There's some emerging work from the clinical psychology literature that looks at individuals who don't sort of modify their, you know, dominant 
posture when another person's being dominant yes. and it's it's that delicate sort of dance that we do with other people as well yeah so that being present isn't you know when we're around other people the rules change too right. that's right yeah should we open it up to do you want to ask maybe yeah. one more question then to see if perfect I, I, i'm noticing people's body language and they're starting to yeah. shift around a lot so i think yeah. it's time to wrap up soon one last question and then i think this is a great segue for everyone here is where do you see this work going next? Like, where oh. where would you be most excited to take oh, it? Oh man, I mean, it changes every day. Yeah. But it, it, I, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I was going to ask you, June, yeah. um, could I have access to some? <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. But yes, I, let's but, collaborate. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually interested. We do collaborate, but mm-hmm. I'm interested in some of the clinical applications. So let me just tell you one story. Two. I hear from a lot of parents who have kids who are on the autism spectrum who are starting to use these kinds of postures to sort of stabilize their kid uh, when they're having a sort of uh, a meltdown and because they do tend to collapse and it's not, I know that it's a challenge for kids on the spectrum to, to adopt that kind of posture, but it seems to be calming. So that's, I, I would love to look at, to, 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 to study this. The other one and kind of the opposite end of the age spectrum. Um, a middle-aged man walked up to me after a talk recently crying and said, um, I want to thank you. I told you about the guy who said, thank you for giving me my son back to Emma. He said, thank you for giving me my father back. And you know, I, I asked him to tell me more about it. And he said, my father is a World War II vet. He's got late-stage Alzheimer's. And he said, I saw your talk a few years ago and I decided to try to get him to stand in a powerful posture because his body language has totally collapsed. He has no sense of pride anymore. And so every morning for five minutes, he will stand like a superhero with me for five minutes. And he said, for five minutes, I feel like I get my father back. I see pride and power and a clarity that I don't see. And then it's gone. But I know every day, at least for a while, I'm going to have that love to know more about what's happening there and if that can be applied um, to, you know, well, there are many, many different different kinds of people. So I will Thank ha- you. hand it over if we have any time just for a couple of questions. Sure. All right. Yes, back here. Um, I was wondering what advice you have for people on a date in a future. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Did you did you interview me last week? Because I got somebody asked me. I'm just kidding, but somebody just asked me this question in an interview, and I and this is not going to be about how you sit. It's, I'm going to give you some different advice. Um, so can you repeat? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, she asked. Um, do you have any advice for what you should do on a date? You know, can you apply this in some way to body language during a date? And and uh, but by the way, I do get asked that question all the time. So, so it's not it's not any, an, an unusual question. First, I should qualify this. I don't have any empirical evidence that that this is true. This is anecdotal, but it makes sense to me. And I think that if you tie it to some other research, it it it, it there's something to it. And I'm gonna have to tell a brief story about how I first met my husband. Um, I actually met him because he posted this picture of himself in this giant power pose. He. 
when he lived in Australia, uh, but his sister worked for my friend and we ended up uh, writing to each other. You can look up Amy Cuddy's husband and find the picture. It's, it's, <laughs> it's something. It's spectacular. And, uh, and it really is, actually. And it's it, the peacock pose, it's right? It's the peacock pose. But he's actually, uh, by the way, just so you know, when you see the picture, he's just the most gentle, sweet giant in the world. So um, he, he's not quite that guy. But I, I was very, very intrigued. And so we started writing and, you know, swapping like Leonard Cohen poems and things like that. And, uh, uh, and, and we finally met in person in Paris. And let me first say, it's not a good place for your first date because the stakes are high. <laughs> it was also my birthday. We both were in Europe. We, you know, so we were like, oh, let's meet in Paris. And we were just so nervous. We were like shaking. So we just walked. We walked for, I feel like we walked all over Paris for two days. And it was so much better to be moving. We weren't sitting there focused on each other, being nervous and feeling like, well, who's going to ask the next question? We had things to look at. But I really think more than that, and I didn't talk about this tonight, but movement is also related to power. So when people feel, when people walk with longer strides and move their hands more and more vertical bounce and head movement, they feel more confident and powerful and happy. And so I think that it made, it freed us from some of that social anxiety and allowed us to really connect. So I, I, I would actually say, don't sit at a table across from each other on a first date, take a walk together. Maybe one more question back here. So, have, have there been any uh, music about just doing it on the imaginary level, internally? Are you a plant? <laughs> so, uh, so that we, so uh, I do talk about this in the book as well. This came from um, a woman named Christine Getman, who is uh, she has no mobility below the neck. She has um, sensation, but but no is not able to move. And so she wrote to me and said. But she, 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 she's, not, she, she's a public speak, speaking coach. She's just fantastic. And she wrote to me and said, I can't do a power pose, but I just imagine myself in a little thought bubble like Wonder Woman, and I just feel like I'm huge. And I, I just feel like I'm, I'm you know, I'm... Uh, uh, I, what it, sorry, I'm trying to... I've got a beautiful video from her where she explains this, but, you know, charismatic, and that I'm owning the room, and I'm just completely on the ball and you know she said I get that feedback from other people that that they do feel that I'm I'm big they forget that I have this disability so we decided to study that and and we just in a in a in the general population so we had people imagine themselves and it was very tricky to figure out how to to make sure they were doing this but to imagine themselves in higher we really described what they what they should imagine higher low power poses for 2 minutes and then we had them we did free ended open ended responses and had them tell us how did they feel when they were doing it. And on, I've never seen in my data such strong, uh, strong, big effects. But what we found was that the people who imagined themselves in the high power poses described, used words like poised, grounded, confident, comfortable, happy. The people who imagined themselves in the low power poses felt, and part of, sorry, part of the scenario was that we said, just to keep people occupied, we said, imagine that there are some strangers walking around. We didn't think that people would care much about the strangers. The people in the low power imagined poses felt, kept saying they felt judged by the strangers. And they described them in detail. Like, I want to open to, let me just, just give me one second and I'm going to, because I want to open to this, uh, this, this page. 
Okay. Um, yeah, so the, the, open, the, 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 confident, the, the high power people said open and strong, grounded and confident, comfortable and poised, confident and solid. The, the low power posers said awkward and tense, scared and lonely, stupid and embarrassed, closed off, threatened and vulnerable, very, very uncomfortable. And then uh, they also described the people in great detail. These are from, from the actual data. A male biker, a lady doctor, and a hippie came in. Um, there was a cowboy with a hat and boots and a blue plaid shirt. There was a blonde girl with a ponytail and a t-shirt that said, I heart New York, followed by a brown bear in a Santa hat looking for a handout. There was a big man with a large bag of hamburgers that I could smell. Like, I, I'm not... I know it seems like you must be making this up, but... Uh, some tall men came in and stared at me. They asked me what I was doing, and I told them yoga. They laughed and tried to push me over. Right? So it, it just went on and on like this. And these are people, this was a national sample. They're not talking to each other. These are the answers they're giving. So yes, it seems that there's something to imagining the poses. And that's consistent, I think, with the work that looks at imagining movement and what happens in the motor cortex. So, you know, imagining yourself swinging a tennis racket and you see the motor cortex activates. So I do think that, that imagining might help when we're not able to actually do it. One last question? Yeah. I've got a question and then a request. Okay. For a closing ritual. Ah, okay. <laughs> I like that. I'm intrigued. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, actually, I talk quite a bit about breathing okay. in, in, uh, in Chapter 7. And some of the work that I described by Emma, our friend who worked with the, 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 the veterans, was breath, uh, related to breath. But there's so much amazing work on, on breathing and the vagus nerve and triggering the rest and digest response instead of the fight-or-flight response. So I think, and I haven't started looking at this in the, the posing uh, area yet, but I'm confident that these expansive postures are not just about uh, the, the symbolic nature or the, 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 the body, the sort of uh, the emotional connection, but the, that breathing is part of this. That when you are sitting up straight, you're simply able to breathe in a way that's telling your mind you're okay, you're safe, you don't need to flee. So I, I'm fascinated by this. In fact, I, the, yeah, vagus nerve is, is like my favorite my favorite term right now. My husband says I talk about it all the time. Oh, another thing about the vagus nerve. So breathing in the vagus nerve, look into that. There's so much, but it sounds like you know about this already. Yes. So yes, I think there's a lot to it. Thank you. I have a request. Oh, the request, yes. Ah, okay. All right. Well, you know, someone, all right. Uh, how about if we all stand up, if, you're will, if you have space? Let me just say, I, I am not a yoga instructor, <laughs> and, and usually my poses are still, but this morning after I gave a talk, a man came up to me and said, um, he was, he, he, and he pointed out that he's actually quite small, but that he played professional sports and always felt really confident because when he was a kid, someone told him, a coach told him that he should start every morning, and I know it's going to be hard to do this, but sort of crouch down and that he should grow up into a tree and raise his arms in the air. And that he said, that's how big you are. And he said, after that, I always felt so much bigger than I actually was. So how about if we just sort of crouch a little bit and raise our arms up into the victory pose like this? Yeah.
All right, that's how big you are. <laughs> Thank you. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.